Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Labors of Love podcast. This is your co-host, Petty Nam, and I'm really missing my co-host, Shonda Sugg, right now. Um, I'm venturing out on my first solo podcast interview, and I'm so thankful to have a dear friend and teacher here, Rev Lien, um, here today. So hello, Rev Lien. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Hetty. Oh, and I didn't realize I was your inaugural solo. Yay! Yes. That's great. Yeah. So um, Shonda's been building this platform for about three years. And I think when she when she asked me to join, we were at about like 73,000 streams or so. Mm. And so I was really honored, but um, I've been really leaning on her to carry most of the show. And so, but she's been, she and our producer, Jay Sugg, have been encouraging me to also invite my guests and have solo conversations. So for um, transparency, mm-hmm. Rev Lien is actually my teacher, my Dharma teacher. And so it just gives me great comfort to see her here. You guys can't see us, but mm-hmm. I see her on the screen. And so I know that we're in for a really good conversation. So thank you for agreeing to be on Labors of Love podcast. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And I'm glad to be here to support you and and to um, be part of the, the podcast and, and the community that's created. Yeah. Um, so I know that we're going to have a great conversation. I just want to share with all of our listeners a little bit about um, Rev Lien before we dive in. So there's a little bit of background. Um, so Rev Lien, she, she, uses, um, she uses she and they pronouns, is a recognized leader in the movement that breaks through the wall of American white-centered convert Buddhism to welcome people of all backgrounds into a contemporary engaged Buddhism. As an ordained Zen priest, licensed social worker, and longtime educator teacher of Buddhism, she represents new leadership at the nexus of spirituality and social justice, offering a special warm welcome to Asian Americans, all BIPOC, LGBTQIA+, immigrants, and all those seeking a home in the midst of North American society's reckoning around racism, sexism, homophobia, and xenophobia. Rev Lien is a co-founder of Buddhists of Color in 1998 and founder of Access to Zen 2014. As the creator, producer, and host, she launched a podcast series, Opening Dharma Access, Listening to BIPOC Teachers, in 2021, which you can find, I believe, on Audible. Um, I know it's that's where I listen to it. Okay, so yeah. welcome to the show again. How are you doing today? Let's start there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, I'm really glad to be here again. <clears throat> 
I'm doing great. It's up a little allergy flare. Um, and probably because it's a beautiful day here in uh, north of San Francisco Bay Area and Petaluma on um, Grayton Rancheria land. And um, there's a little wind, a, a pretty strong breeze. So I think the pollen, if there's any left or whatever, is flying in the air. Um, yeah, really in the shift of the the changing of the season, like like many people, including kind of trying to wrap things up, like the book tour and uh, certain programs, like the one you're in and staying the precepts and then just getting ready for next year. You know, January is the, the busiest season for what, um, gyms, meditation mm -hmm. halls, <laughs> you know, maybe the library, I don't know. You know, we all, many of us in January is like, okay, now I'm going to really do the things I've been meaning to do and want to do. So, um, yeah, we all try to get ready for that. It's exciting time and it, and so it takes a lot of um, effort and lining things up. Yeah. yeah. Um, Yes, it is a shifting of the seasons. And you already mentioned in your answer so many things that you're up to. Um, would love to ask you what we ask all of our guests amidst all of those different projects. What is your labor of love? Yeah, so so since you asked me, I've been thinking, oh, and what is my labor of love? And I've come up with different answers. So here's today's answer. Um, my labor of love is the alleviation of suffering. Um, wow. Yeah, so that would be my labor of love. And then the, uh, uh, not conversely, but another way to put it, I would say is my labor of love is to bring joy. Mm. And uh, this comes in, as you probably know, since you study with me, is from Buddhism. So as I'm a, a Soto Zen priest, um, my life is about how to um, spread the, the Dharma, which is the teachings of, of Buddhism. And it's based on the Four Noble Truths, which classically are, you know, in life there's suffering. Um, what are the, that's the first. The second Noble Truth is what are the causes and conditions for the rising mm. of it. The third is um, classically, um, how does that end? Or what? The, the, or there is an ending to it, and then the fourth is um, the eightfold path, which has eight components, but are made up of three parts. Should I go into all those? Is that a good um, thing? You, uh, you can if you want to. I don't want to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll just say that. Um, so I've been working on the engaged version of it, which is more how to bring in the systemic lens and very much as a restorative model and in particular um, in terms of how it's been coming together uh, much more clearly is a restorative model around racialization and racism. Um, and so the first noble truth is um, we actually ad not only just say that in life there's suffering, but that there's hurt and harm has happened because mm -hmm. that's the beginning of restoration is agreeing that there is a problem or there is something broken that needs repaired. Um, and I think that's a difficult one, just like the first noble truth is difficult in general. Um, mostly we don't want to figure out what, what is harmful and what hurts. Um, yeah. 
And so when we, however, to restore something, we have to say something is, is hurting or something's broken. Um, just like, you know, going to AA and admitting you have a, uh, use problem, right. Around mm-hmm. alcohol or, um, or drugs, or, you know, in Buddhism, we like to say our, our, uh, the thing that we are stuck on the most is our sense of separateness from each other, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that's our that's what we're recovering from. So anyway, the first noble truths, uh, the engaged version is as hurt and harm. The mm-hmm. second is um, what are the causes and condition? But we focus much more on the conditions, which are the systemic, because in popular mm-hmm. mindfulness, which comes out of Buddhism, even though it's secularized a lot, is in in a lot of broad mainstream understanding of mindfulness or Buddhist practice or the the Dharma, not even as Buddhism, um, is that it's a self-work. And it is a Mm -hmm. self-work, but but there's systemic reasons to how some people have access to ways of working with the self or access to containers to heal in a way, or um, having people acknowledge their harm, you know, um, the harm that's been done to them. And then the third is where do we have agency in the midst of harm? Mm. And then the last is the Eightfold Path, which so I'll go through it. Um, so there are eight, and they're broken into three sections. The first is called the wisdom section, which is skillful view or understanding, skillful um, thinking or motivation. Uh, that's the wisdom part. Next is what's used classically called the ethical conduct. And I mm-hmm. like to call it the compassionate connection because it's mm-hmm. the interactive part, skillful speech, skillful action, and skillful livelihood or living. And then the last grouping is uh, the meditative or samadhi grouping, which is skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, and skillful concentration. So mm-hmm. those are the meditative factors that supports us. While they're the last, they're often considered the bridge between our values or our wisdom and how we put into action the ethical conduct or the compassionate connection. Mm. So we we meditate to say, hmm, am I living in accordance to my values or how I how I view the world, how I want the world to be, right? My understanding mm-hmm. of the world. Or we say, hmm, am I um, acting in accordance to that or am I imp- implementing my values? So that's, that's one way. Yeah. yeah. So I think, so, you know, most people think of Buddhism as, oh, life is suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it is, it is say that in life there is suffering. And I think that's why I say that my labor of love is about suffering because mm-hmm. it's about um, that we have to acknowledge, you know, as um, I'm paraphrasing bell hooks, but bell hooks says, you know, systems of domination um, really say that something is how does it go? Systems of domination say that everything of value is outside of you, right? Yeah. And so how you are and how you acknowledge your pain is something you have to work on and to acknowledge that because especially in oppression, it's put on us as safe as people of color in the system of racism. That's mm-hmm. our fault that we have pain. Right. Right. So what can you do to get out of your pain? It's your fault, as opposed to acknowledging that our pain is from the system, the domination system of racism, of white supremacy culture, essentially. 
And so we need to acknowledge that and work on that. Um, and, and mostly dominant culture says, don't acknowledge all that. Everything's okay, mm-hmm. right? As long as we're all doing our part. And of course, the who's doing what is inequitable. And mm-hmm. that's part of um, what we need to acknowledge. So, so I would say my labor of love is how to not, not just acknowledge suffering, but how do we work with suffering? Right. Right. And, and then part of that is remembering the third noble truth, which is that we have agency or that mm-hmm. we have that there's joy, you know, in living. We kind of, it's what helps us hold the balance that there is some here, something here that I can do and we can do collectively together to address the suffering of the world or our own, right? So we're not isolated. Yeah. That was a lot in the first five minutes there. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we're going to break it down and we're going to bring it to life because so much. Thank you for sharing that. And for our listeners, I'll make sure to include in our show notes um, links to view the Four Noble Truths and the um, Eightfold Path, because I know it's a lot to remember, but I think there are so many um, jewels of wisdom, obviously, (laughs) for everybody in here. And one, so I had a few things that come up. One is, I know that your um, practice and your identity is very rooted in Buddhism. I'm curious to know if there was a life experience um, either while you were practicing or before you were even aware of like this well-versed <laughs> and trained and ordained in Buddhism where you kind of knew um, you were drawn to this labor of love to bring joy and alleviate suffering and like do something about um, the things that were wrong in the world, so to speak. Yeah, well, I, I will admit that I started out like many of us where I realized that the way I experienced the world, my suffering um, in the world, you know, I already had all the sense of, you know, being queer, being a female, being uh, Asian American, being an immigrant, all that in terms of all that I understood intellectually. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I approach it as, you know, in my, gosh, when I first moved here more, so 30, as um, <clears throat> really all those things helped me. And yet there's something here that I, there's not enough healing somehow, you know, mm-hmm. though I might not have used that word then. Just more like mostly the way it came out was I want to be more calm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I'm agitated a lot. I, I'm suffering in the world, but again, I wouldn't have used that word, right? So right. I think for me, that's part of coming to Buddhism. You know, when I first heard in life there's suffering, I actually went, ah, oh, thank goodness. Somebody mm. says something that really is my experience, right? Because right. again, dominant society is going, Everything is lovely when you right. buy X car, when you buy X perfume, when you have this kind of house, this kind of partner, this dog, whatever it is, right? Right. Yeah. Those of us at the margins, it's it's odd because 
um, we're so gaslit and it's always about the emperor's new clothes that when someone actually says the truth, even though the truth may not be welcome news, there's like this sense of relief of like, oh, I'm not crazy. (laughs) Like this is actually happening. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, it describes my experience. You know, and it gave it gave languaging to it. Um, but I did approach it, you know, like like um well, I was born in Vietnam as a Buddhist, um, because of many reasons for my adoption, you know, I have limited memory. And mm-hmm. um and you know, the in terms of the Buddhist memory was really just going to the temple and offering incense. Mm-hmm. Um not not a regular kind of visit kind of thing or meditation for goodness sake you know um and so when i started i also you know got some cassette tapes from dog ear books down in valencia and listened to learn to meditate so that's how i started on that um and then the thing was my ad- adoptive father a few years into and i was with you know i had, was part of the buddhists of color and i went on a couple of retreats by then but my adoptive father was dying mm-hmm. and um at the time i was making art was a barista so of the six siblings I, I did offer and they all were delighted that i went to live with him and i i lived with him for the last three out of the four months of his mm-hmm. death or of his dying um and at the end he just needed 24-hour care which i couldn't give um and i will admit that there were certain things that the way he behaved, um, mm. you know, he he was a at that point he was a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, he also was from the you know he was a lot older. Uh, he was from kind of like the Mad Max kind of generation, you know, where mm-hmm. smoking and drinking and all that was part of the macho thing, you know. Um, but and he also was like the first to go to college in his family and stuff like that. So a, a really kind of, as many of us, complex person. However, um, I want, I'll just give an example. And and, it, and I'll say content warning. But mm-hmm. I think this really helps me. Mm-hmm. Is that um, two things. One is that when I was living with him, um, so he had some, they had some cats that they had for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, they a couple of their babies of those cats became my cats, right? Aww. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you know, we were and my mother, my mother had died that time, but she was the one that got the cats. And but they've been with our family for a long, long time, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, content warning. Really seriously, should I go? Because a serious content warning here. Is it animal cruelty? Ah, uh, well, the no. thought of the thought of. Okay. Not, yes. But not the action. So content warning. Yeah, content warning. So um, so I was taking care of him and and um, you know, we didn't talk that much. He watched TV a lot. And I will say he was dying emphysema. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't getting enough oxygen to his brain. Mm-hmm. So some mm-hmm. sometimes he would just say really odd thing. However, there was a bit here. So he said to me, he called me in and he said, This is what I want you to do. I want you to take the two cats, I wouldn't say the names just to make it more. And I want you to put them in a pillowcase and then I want you to put some rocks in there. And then what? he lived off a lake. I know. And then go put them in the lake. And I was like, what? Wow. What? 
what are you talking about? And he says, yeah, that's what I want you to do. And I'm like, of course, I'm not going to do that. Right. And at that mm-hmm. point, I was just mad at him. Right. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, you know, yeah, you know, I, you know, I swear. So, hey, right. I'm not and you do- are allowed to swear. On oh, okay. Well, I said, fucking yeah. A, of course, I'm not going to do that. So, so then I just kind of stormed out of the room. Right. And then another, my, my sister came to start taking care of things. And I actually don't remember the content, but one time I was in the room and he said something to her and, um, and then she was like, whatever the answer. And, and then he said something and she was equally mad. It was actually a way where he, I could watch that he knew how to like tweak us in the way, like mm-hmm. mine was about the animals. Hers was about business because like, mm-hmm. you know, she's a business major, but it really kind of made her upset. Right. And I, I thought, oh, this guy doesn't know how to make connection. Because when she got mm. upset, he had a little smile on his face. Mm. Like that that was his way of understanding how to make connection. Wow. And, you know, he was mostly out of our lives because he mm-hmm. was mostly drinking most of our lives. And they were the generation in which, you know, dad came home. You just left him alone. He read the paper. Right, right. You know, mm-hmm. rum and cokes and whatever, or two at the time, but more later. Um, and so you just left him alone. And so there wasn't that much interaction with him. And so it just really got me thinking. Like, I mean, in retrospect, of course, the whole thing with the cat is that he knew it was somewhere that was close to my heart. And it was, mm-hmm. I think it was his way of saying, I think I'm dying soon and I can't take care of the cats. But instead of mm-hmm. saying, Come right. in here. I'm dying. I feel like my end is near. Mm-hmm. Will you take care of the cats? Do you know this is just this way of just trying to say, I, I I don't know, because I never went back for the conversation. Because this is thing I had later, right? After mm-hmm. his death. And then I thought, wow, the way you live is the way you're gonna die. Yeah. Like how we interact with people, mm-hmm. how what we how what the things we say, how we say it, how we connect with another. You don't learn that, you know, it's only in Hollywood that you learn that the last minute to be, you know, kind or whatever. I, it's not that mm-hmm. it's impossible, mind you, but mm-hmm. I it really showed me that how we behave in life, mm-hmm. how we go through life is the way it doesn't change at the end for the most part. Yeah. So it doesn't I, magically change. Yeah possible but rarely especially in the short term so I just really thought wow I really need to practice more and to practice more is to go towards how is it that I suffer and when I'm not able to process my suffering then I create more suffering for other people yeah right so that's why my labor of love is to say okay let's acknowledge our suffering and Mm -hmm. work with it and heal it so that we don't pass that on to others. We don't continue to hurt and harm others because we come from hurt and harm. And also, yeah. how do we create conditions for people to process their hurt and not to, which I think is the fundamental of being a teacher of Buddhism. And then when we do that, we realize that there's joy in life, right? The third noble truth is the good news, that the ending of suffering is possible. Well, I'm... I'm just really um, odd that in that moment, 
And well, maybe not right when you're dead, <laughs> told yes. you what to do with the cats, but you observe this pattern when he's whispered something to your sister. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for most people, for most of us, it's it's hard to see through those things down to the intentions and like the core of human need. And I feel like that's something that um, you've taught me to like ride that elevator down from Mm. the surface level of like, these are the words being said, these Mm. are the actions being taken, but underneath that there's feelings, there's um, like the somatic experience, Mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. there's the need and the value. And even if it's coming out in this warped way, that could be harmful. Like we're all at the very core, like longing for the same things. Mm. And um, yeah, so I I just find it amazing that you were able to see that and that you were able to use that as an impetus to get more deeply into practice, because I can imagine, you know, just the way that we're not really given spiritual or social emotional tools in the ways that were conditioned and raised in society most people that would just turn them off from a relationship with their dad and to be able to see them as human mm-hmm. so yeah i'm just really sitting with that right now yeah and i i i, I mean i think that's the 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 gift and the result of practice and you mm-hmm. know you sort of, you've heard me say this but in buddhism you know a lot of times especially broadly sometimes people frame buddhism as a philosophy mm-hmm. and as a, a wisdom practice which indeed it is and as you remember in buddhism we say the two wings of buddhism one is wisdom and one is compassion and mm-hmm. the, the analogy that I like to use is, um, you know, there are two wings on a bird. Mm-hmm. And so um, you want them to have strength, both wisdom mm-hmm. and um, compassion. And however, they're there because it helps you to remember if your wisdom wing is too strong, what happens? You just fly in a circle one way. Yeah. But if you, mm-hmm. if you're, compassion wing is too strong or you overuse it that's that's probably better than saying it's too strong when you use it too much then you just go in a circle the other way Mm -hmm. and so our practice is actually to have strength in both and to as is needed and conditioned because sometimes we do have to go left and sometimes we do have to go right to use them in a way so that we can have some Control, I suppose, is one word. What's another word that isn't so much about control? Um, we can. So there's some capacity and ability and efficacy in going where we want to go, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important. And the 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 thing is, the other thing is that we have to practice not to just understand things, which is how most of us think about wisdom. We mm-hmm. actually need to practice to. Um, know how to approach suffering. Most of us, when yeah. you know, when when probably when p- people heard me say, "Well, I'm here. My labor of love is around suffering." They're probably, "Oh, okay. We're going to need to understand our suffering world, which is really important." Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is so, and uh, the more and more I practice, the more I realize that 
my labor of love about around suffering is not for just for us to understand our suffering more or other people's suffering is certainly true but how do we bring qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity towards um how we are with our suffering and that's yeah. kind of the ironic part of practice is with more practice you realize how you approach your suffering and how you work to heal it is the part that almost the the more important part of practice yeah because sometimes we think insight means you know content right like the the understanding well, we're very conditioned in capitalist society like you know we there's certain forms of intelligences that mm. we value mm -hmm. and like having an analysis thinking that from analysis is going to come solutions uh -huh. that kind of thinking you know and so i know that as i practice and just be human mm -hmm. i the older i get the more i realize i've been sold like a false bill of goods because uh -huh. i thought that if i studied hard and i analyze analyze things and look for solutions and best practices things would get better and it's like often they didn't uh -huh. And there's a deeper level, like wisdom encompasses so many multiple intelligences that is not just about brain <laughs> intelligence. Yeah. Sure. yeah. 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 And I, um, there's so much I want to say, but I really want to turn to your book because congratulations, you Thank published you. a book this uh -huh. year in uh -huh. August called Home is Here, Practicing Anti-Racism with the Engaged Eightfold Path. And everything that you're saying and what's in this book, I just find to be incredibly relevant for these times. It has been just unspeakable horror for the last mm. um few a couple months um almost hard to believe it's December and it started early October and not only is the mass annihilation of people and mm. just the seemingly like ceaseless nature of it and mm. lack of hope for turning this around despite worldwide cries for a ceasefire mm -hmm. not only is that really tough to process and be with as a human being on this planet then there's all these additional layers of increasing anti-semitism and islamophobia mm -hmm. and vitriol in the news and social media so it's been a really challenging time and so i would love to share um have you talk about the book a little bit and also get into sort of application a little bit because I know I've been certainly uh, like my mental and emotional health has been challenged trying to hold that and be with that suffering in a way that is like where I can apply skillful understanding and action and it's incredibly difficult mm -hmm. um so as, as you all know and it says at the inter the preface of the book is a book arose as a response. Um, so in 2020, in early part, um, a, a few Asian Americans um, approached me because of the anti-Asian violence that was up. And this is in the San Francisco Bay Area and the different sanghas that I teach at. Um, and I've been 
um, working on these, the, the reframing of the Four Noble Truths to be restorative. Actually, since 2017, when in the convert Buddhist circles, there was another arising or um, exposure of um, sexual misconduct by mm -hmm. leaders. Um, and so uh, I was at a Generation X teacher conference where they brought in right use of power as a restorative model, which I really love. But I kept thinking, well, I go to all these trainings in my, you know, Buddhist 20 some years of Buddhist practice. And um when there's a problem, some other model is always brought in. So what is there about from Buddhism? And that's why I've been working in the Engage Four Noble Truths. So then I, I uh, put together a course called Lotus Rising from the Mud um, to address anti-Asian violence, a restorative model for those of us. And, um, and, then, uh, and then with the murder of George Floyd, uh, I've been in conversation with a couple of other teachers. Uh, we did the Dharma being anti-racist, which is for all of us in different um, location within race, racialization. Um, how do we really address that? And the courses are really based on not just the Eightfold Path, but also on processing. Uh, so every other week we need to, to process the homework, how we racialize, how we were taught really to, to deal with the impact. And, and in that, we how do we undo what we were taught? Because we were mm -hmm. sold a, you know, a lot of mistruths. And, um, and then also how to relearn in a more skillful ways and connecting way. So um, there was that. Um, and so as we were going along, I was using a book that I, I appreciate, but people find it wasn't very germane. There's uh, it's a little bit old fashioned and also, of course, didn't address race or other oppressions at all. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the book arose. And really, I started out just to write stuff to go with the courses. Um, and a, a, a Buddhist publisher had been approaching me for like five years up to that point to, to do something. And so that's how it became a book. Um, so it, it came out of a response to suffering. There we go, right? Mm -hmm. My labor of love is responding to suffering, um, to how to, to how to attend to people. Um, and really, I, I think that's my central work is to attend to the suffering of the world, uh, both individually and collectively. So that that's about the book. What what the other aspect of this question? Yeah, I would love if you pulled out any pieces that you want to share with our listeners in this moment, mm. knowing that it's very difficult to navigate as a global citizen with the suffering that's going on. Um, and then there's life continues. So there's also the individual level suffering and triumphs and all of that and so yeah I find that um the, what you were saying about the bird two bird wings um mm -hmm. I feel like often I have had a bigger wing on the compassion side mm -hmm. and it has caused me to go in circles and kind of lose myself because mm. I get so caught up in the horrors and then when I go to take action um, and be in solidarity with other folks just um, the amount of vitriol and like finger pointing has really like taken me aback and so it's been hard to find refuge and um, 
you know, I'm mostly not looking at groups. I'm cultivating individual relationships where I can be honest about the fact that like, yes, I don't personally know someone who's living in Gaza or Israel, but uh, like this is a form of suffering to watch this because it's very concerning. And then from there, how do we find wise ways to act instead of getting like mired in um, the in despair and depression of mm -hmm. it all. And so I found um, I know that in early on in October, you recorded a equanimity meditation there. Oh. I feel like there's a lot of useful applications of this book now that can kind of reconnect us with our humanity while keeping an eye on what's really important instead of all of the like noise that's kind of being kicked up by all of this. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So I think one, let, let's just talk since you brought it up, the equanimity practice. Um, so equanimity is one of the four Brahma Viharas, which um, are, consider easeful practices of, of heart and mind that the Buddha taught. Um, and usually it is, the word is upeka or upeksha, and it's usually translated as equanimity. Um, and most of, and, and on a certain level, the, the equanimity that comes from being in the midst of, as opposed to kind of falling to the, the extremes, right? And the way you could say the non-duality, which is really important in Buddhism, right? I think that for many of us, when we get stuck in, it's not that the duality doesn't exist, there's dark and there's light, right? It's not that they don't exist, but when we just get stuck in, this is, this is what this is, and this is what that is, then that's where we can have more suffering between in ourselves or with others. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I will say that equanimity here, I have been holding more as resilient. So equanimity is not just like a, I am solid here, because mostly I think many of us think, oh, to have equanimity, I have to be like a rock, you know, I have to be stable. And I think there's yeah. something here about stability, but stability is also that sense of, I have a sense of stability, but I'm part of conditions. So resilience is, we realize the impact on us and we have wherewithal to be able to um, hold it and to keep on functioning or then to have ways to not be overwhelmed by it. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't find the equanimity practice to be asking me to be a rock. It, it does actually asked me to be much softer mm. because it's an ability to withstand the causes and conditions that arise and mm -hmm. anything that even like a bridge or a building you know they even though they look solid they're actually quite flexible um mm -hmm. so that they don't crack and so yeah i think it's important to unpack equanimity here in as a practice for staying with and having gathering the wherewithal to really address suffering because i know that oftentimes in pop culture like the new agey 
meditation culture, often this can be like, oh, this suffering doesn't touch me and I'm trying to get away from it. And I'm like all zen and blissed out. So nothing is touching me. And I don't find it that way. I find it like I'm allowed to weep. I'm allowed to grieve, but it's to not get swallowed whole by that. Sure, exactly. Yeah, I think um, I was just talking to... um... Professor Sher, Sharon Sher, who I'm going to be in dialogue with um, in Seattle, about how a prominent, we could say Western framing of Buddhism is that we need to transcend things, but really mm-hmm. our practice is to be in the muck, right? in the midst mm-hmm. of things. And how do we do it's the key. So, so this is going to an- answer, I think, what you're asking for too. So let me just read a few of the phrases, right? In my equanimity, um, uh, meditation. May all beings access flexibility within the comings and goings of their lives. May every one of us be able to harmonize our joys and sorrows as they come and go. I'm on one, 126. Let clarity of heart and mind be our guide in every situation in service of non-harming. And may the realization of our strength rest in resilience be possible for every one of us. So I think that's also, and, and, and that's what you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I think how we practice doing difficult times is one, not get stuck in duality. Mm-hmm. Right? Not that it isn't that, that we can't say something is wrong or right. It's more mm-hmm. that are we doing it in a way that dehumanizes others mm-hmm. or ourselves for that matter? Right. Um, so we want to, we want to say, this is what I think of as right and wrong, or this is my belief, but we want to also be open to other people's points of view and, and be in dialogue with that. So that takes more of being, you know, as you, you know, the black and white, but really we live in the gray area. Right. Right. Or, and I th- and I think it's important to note that, um, that yes, we want to be in dialogue because I think one fundamental thing to Buddhism, especially Zen, is the beginner's mind. But what we're not saying, I just want to be crystal clear for our listeners, is that mm. we are debating facts. Um, I go back mm. to the story that you talked about your father dying i think similar principle Mm. is here even if people are saying hateful and vitriolic things it's um it is easy to for me to hate those i disagree with Mm -hmm. especially when they're saying such morally repugnant things but i guard against hating not necessarily for them but for myself so Mm -hmm. that i can have that i can have that power back that agency Mm -hmm. back to do take a wise action and I think it's being able to see those people as human and getting to the core need just like you were talking about with how your dad was approaching you and your sister as he was dying yes so yes there there's a lot of nuance in this and I don't think what we're saying is that we're debating facts, mm-hmm. but it's how we're really engaging with each other as human beings. Exactly. Yeah. So not not necessarily just about the content, 
right. more about the the way that we the do way it. that yes yeah yeah because someone could be saying something not true and there's multiple ways to engage with that but mm-hmm. we've kind of been taught like um very much like Harvard debate style or with a bullhorn like there's very limited options in the toolbox for how to deal with that and often we'll I've seen so many <laughs> unfruitful conversation comment wars on social media and I'm like I don't think that this is changing anyone's mind or bringing them closer to their humanity I think it would be better if these comments were turned off yeah yeah you know <laughs> right so so then that's the other thing it's about who has access to have their voice heard Right. right. I mean, and we're seeing that where they're shutting off access, right, mm-hmm. in Gaza. It's to, to silence the voice, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so that's certainly part of it. But I think what, I, and what I want to say is that we want to stay away from framing things in duality, mm-hmm. and, and when we notice we're doing that, to kind of pull back because mm-hmm. I know that you know, um. This can be a time, it's surprisingly, I think many of us thought like Black Lives Matter was when there might be friendships or family breaking, you know, because Mm -hmm. of, 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 and it it probably did happen too, Mm -hmm. but it feels like this is a moment, what's happening in Gaza is a moment in which there's a lot of like, I don't know if we can be in together in friendship or in family or whatever. And so I think it's a time in which we want to really be careful that we remember the broader picture, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to agree. Um, it depends on what we do with our opinions, right? And and mm-hmm. we have access. So so that's important. And at the same time, we want to not just focus on the one thing that is the, the conflict. Because yes. we want to remember our relationships are more than just any one thing. Right. Which doesn't mean it, it can't shift or can't be different or can't have some distance. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we want to get, we, we want to be careful not to cut ourselves off internally or externally. Yeah. Well, which doesn't mean you don't take distance if needed. Right. I mean, what I'm realizing now in terms of you sharing your love as alleviating suffering i'm like the the crazy thing about it all is that um we think that we are gonna get to justice and cessation of suffering by drawing these hard lines Mm. and this type of othering is exactly the cause exactly the violence exactly and so how are we gonna fight the problem with the problem yeah exactly it's interesting you know when we were talking about that earlier and you were talking about the mind right and i was you know that classic framing of like the mind that sees the problem is in the mind that can solve the problem right and i was just thinking oh the heart that sees a problem or the heart that feels the problem isn't necessarily the heart that will ease the problem, right? Yes. So, so it's almost like we have to shift because I know my heart tightens or hardens mm-hmm. around right. conflict. And, and the irony is we think, oh, we just need to say the thing 
so that we right. can to agree make it all okay better. But it's really when we go away, we're like, oh yeah, that's right. They're my cousin or they're my whatever, and we have some you know some joy joy time together. Mm -hmm. We have to remember this is I think this is it is that when things are difficult, it's when we see things in extremes and right. doesn't mean that they're not valid. The extremes what's happening in Gaza is extreme. I mean, that's that's the, the I think that's why I just, you know, go what because there's so many extreme things happening and yet the powers that be are not admitting to that and doing something mm -hmm. about it. So it isn't that just because we see things in extreme, we should not. I'm not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. However, what we don't want to get caught in is to just see the extreme. We want to remember that there's a lot of layers here. And where is it that we can make the connection? You know, like, and I can't remember what chapter, but there's, um, well, I could look it up. There's a thing about othering right in here. Because mm -hmm. we're talking about othering. There's a practice right. of othering. Um, or or mindful reflection on diffusing othering under skillful mm -hmm. effort, by the way, skillful effort. So 102, right? So we, we the, the reflection is who you're imagining sitting across from someone you have a, some conflict with. And then you really want to, so here's the other thing, why we're attending to our suffering. Conflict is suffering. I know I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm not happy when I'm in public mm -hmm. with somebody I'm hurting, I'm hurting. Right. And anger is a kind of hurt for me, you know? Yeah. So, so I mean, nobody I, wants to be angry. It just right? arises. <laughs> right. Well, it arises out of conditions and, and also when conflicts happen. Yeah. Nobody wants conflict. I don't actually know. Well, except for no. maybe one or two people, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Most of us do not want conflict. Um, so we also need to attend to the impact of the conflict. This is the other thing, right? Is when we sometimes think, oh, I'm having conflict with you. So I need to go figure out how to fix you mm -hmm. and how to, you know, attend to the conflict as how, what do I do with you? Right? right. What can I say? What can you can do, see differently or whatever what videos or comments I need to send you or whatever right when right. part of it it's like oh wait if I can attend to my hurt of this mm -hmm. conflict right that I've there's something I don't understand I'm losing trust or mm -hmm. you know you hurt my feeling by you know dissing me or whatever so we want to really locate it and attend to ourselves because when we can attend to ourselves then there's enough subtleness where we go okay we disagree, you know, and it isn't my hurt that's driving my wanting to keep arguing with you. Right. right. It's really like, okay, I tend to my hurt. And so now I can say, hmm, well, we disagree. Let's not talk about this anymore. Or whatever is right. a, 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 a more appropriate, right? And then part of this is now if you imagine the person's doing the same thing, mm. what might be some similarities? I mean, can you imagine if Israel... And um, people running in Gaza, the Palestinians running in Gaza. I won't say Hamas because I don't think it's necessarily mm. all true, right? Mm -hmm. um, if they sat down and thought, oh, what do we have in similarity? I mean, in fact, that's what the people there, right. both Israeli yes. and Palestinians, are coming up and saying, these are the similarities. These are the we both want peace. We both want to live here together. 
We just want, you know, so if we remember that, if we work for the commonality and the similarities of, as beings that are, are, that want safety and peace, right? Then, then we might get somewhere as opposed to, no, no, I'm going to bomb you before you bomb me, you know? And that's the other thing I think a lot about what's happening there. It's just trauma on top of trauma yes. on top of trauma. And no, not not a lot of healing. And that's why it's all reactive. It's so much reactive, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. lived in Egypt during, you know, when the whole um, Israel and uh, Egypt was happening. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that reminds me a friend of mine who's an activist shared like, hey, 1948 wasn't actually that long ago. We have many people who are alive, who were born before that and are still alive now. And these elders remind us like, hey, before the Nakba, like we lived side by side in peace. It was really about political um, divisions and strategy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it what you're saying really reminds me of that. It's hard uh, when we can get out of that body activation like you were saying like when someone when you're in conflict with someone or someone hurts your feelings I think there's also like our nervous systems that mm -hmm. are activated and I know there's a part of me even if it's someone I love like my partner there's something in my brain that's like I have to destroy this person <laughs> like <laughs> I have to make sure that they know that I'm right and they're wrong and everything is gonna unfold the way I need it and it often takes like just okay let's not react this is what's happening let me just be honest even if i'm not sharing it within myself like i feel this need to defend and destroy mm -hmm. let me calm down and then look at it again it's like oh yeah we just disagree and sometimes mm -hmm. it's not even a moral thing a, a ethical thing it's just a stylistic difference and it's uh -huh. like oh we can live in harmony like uh -huh. we're uh -huh. both trying to get to the same goal using different paths uh -huh. is that such a bad thing and so yeah um i'm just reflecting on all of that sure sure that makes sense and i think that that's where the 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 part about being flexible and then harmonizing right mm -hmm. harmonizing is you can have different tunes you can have different you know and yet you're singing the same song right right yeah 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 i think um those of us who are calling for ceasefire and wanting to see peace um on the land and among communities i mean i don't know a single one of those people who don't deeply respect both um jewish folks and palestinians and muslims and all of the different faiths i think we're talking about just fundamental human dignity it's not a comparison better or worse than or mm -hmm. othering i think that's really the the fundamental thing we're calling for which is why it's so hard to stay with it when political powers that have the opportunity to stop it, have the decision-making power to stop it aren't because we're like, what is happening here? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, the, of course, yeah. Also the world kind of communities. Yeah. Yeah. Bit, yeah. 
Well, um, before we wrap up, as we draw to a close, there's so much more we could have talked about. So maybe we'll invite you back again, because uh-huh. I mean, we barely scratched the surface, but I think this was a really helpful. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch on or that I didn't ask about that you wanted to make sure to convey to our listeners? Yeah, so um, I think the thing is that this takes work, you know, attending to our suffering so that we can hold the joy or mm-hmm. remember joy takes active work and take, um, you know, we say practice is a lifelong thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a one-time thing. And um, as I think what, what resonates for us about what's happening in um, Palestine is that um it is something that we can see here on our own lands mm-hmm. and, um, and also continues to. And so um, I think this is work um, in terms of the book so that we are offering another round of the Dharma being anti-racist next year, mm-hmm. uh, starting February 6th um, uh, for 12 weeks. And there'll be a team of teachers uh, from all social locations, racial locations, um, working together. Um, so yeah, I want to really encourage people to, to um, we don't quite have it up yet because we're just formulating the team and getting things ready. Um, but to, yeah, join us in doing the work together. Um, doing it, um, and I really want to encourage groups to do it together because I think that's part of how we attend to suffering. It's so the other thing is that we we think it's individual work. And mm-hmm. yet um, part of what makes restoration possible is that groups have the same kind of languaging and the same sense of how to approach it together and going through it together makes a big difference. You know? Yeah. I mean, also when we're signing up (laughs) when we're dedicating ourselves to the work of anti-racism it's really not an issue that one person can solve alone Mm -hmm. I know that I took a training on somatic abolitionism with Resma Menachem and he um, says you absolutely can't do this as an individual practice we Mm -hmm. were incurred we had in order to complete the program, we had to sign up in pods of two to three and witness each other monthly mm-hmm. um, doing the practices because he's like, this is a collective social <laughs> creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one person's actions does make a difference, but it's not going to be the undoing of it. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. so, yeah, uh, what you share really resonates and, um, I love that. I think we now is time to lean on community more than ever. Mm-hmm. And I know from I've participated in I'm now in the third of your um, Dharma pro- group Dharma programs. And I know not only have I gained so much from your teachings and the practices, but really the community that uh, we've built and just um this past month, I was experiencing burnout and depression and many different mental health challenges. And um, I 
at requested to the group, including Rev Lien, to take a step back. And I was amazed that um, my Sangha members, my group members, did not forget me. And they would mm. send me little lines mm -hmm. throughout the month saying, like, just thinking of you, no pressure to respond. And um, it's really, yeah, so the community... Uh, the, just the way that you've woven these programs together, often it can there can be a binary of what you do for the external world mm -hmm. or a collective society versus your inner like personal circle. Mm -hmm. And I feel that the way that we've created like formed as a group, we seamlessly go across all of those levels. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're able to talk about, collective issues like racism but then we're able to attend to each other's personal mm -hmm. suffering and really walk with each other and so I know I've really appreciated that oh good I'm so glad oh and I'm yeah. so glad that um you know your sangha mates have, have stepped up I mean I've seen a few of the emails and I'm glad yeah Com this. community works <laughs> yeah it really does you know it really does it's so yeah. central to healing mm -hmm. um well thank you so much for um spending an hour with us if our listeners want to find you and sign up for this dharma of being anti-racist course or anything else where can they connect with you uh, i have a website at access a c c e s s two the tozen.org, -E so access to zen.org. Um, and then I do have an Instagram page, I believe it's access to zen also. I don't know if you have show notes, but you can put in yeah, there. Yeah, I'll, I'll find the link. Yeah. I'm not on social media much either, if you I can't know. tell. <laughs> yes, and then definitely listen to the podcast because uh, we, we've presented some really great um, teachers of, of color um yeah and that's that's that season's wrapping up in the beginning of next year too so yeah um yeah so we'll make sure to include all that information in the show notes and once again i just want to thank you for being on and hopefully there'll be more conversations to come thank you and thank you for um inviting me and it's been a great to connect with you and and talk through you know i was thinking oh maybe some really intense stuff for the listener but and at the same time yeah. it just feels really natural and uh real and authentic and i i know that's what i'm trying to be and create and i'm glad to have been doing it with you yeah yeah i think um definitely it is intense and in a way sometimes it's nice in society when you have a space to talk about those things that you don't get to bring up in the day-to-day -day fray so I think um, this is all part of your presence here and your everything you shared is all part of your labor of love so I want to thank you and I want to give my shout outs to Jay Sugg, our producer from Instant Classic Media, Trey Angel for the beautiful music, Stephanie J. Spencer, who does all of our social media. And of course, I can't forget my co-host and founding host, Shonda Sugg. You can find her at Labors of Love. Um, and you can find me on 
uh, Instagram at Hetty Nam and at Rosalie.org. And thank you all for tuning in. Till next time, be well.